It's philosophy talk. May I speak to you for a minute? How does time fit into the furniture of the universe? Go. You have 58 seconds. Well, in glancing at your books, I noticed that in the columns... You have 48 seconds left. Hurry, hurry. The past has already happened. The future hasn't happened yet. If only the present moment exists, where does the future come from? I glanced at your books, I noticed in the... 28 seconds, you're running out of time. Mr. Bialystok, I cannot function under these conditions. You're making me extremely nervous. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. Where does time come from? Is time just a construct of the mind? Our guest is Julian Barber, author of The End of Time. Sorry, the five minutes is up. <laughs> that was never five minutes just now. I'm afraid it was. The reality of time. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford, where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today, we're thinking about the reality of time. Well, Ken, nothing seems more basic or real than time. I mean, every moment uh, confirms the existence of time. Yet many philosophers, from Zeno of Elia uh, to Augustine, to many others, find it deeply puzzling, and some, like John Ellis McTaggart, even claimed with fancy argumentation that time is unreal. Now, this is supposed to be news, John. A bunch of philosophers doubting the reality of something that seems so obvious and irresistible to everybody else. That's news. Well, the news is it's not just philosophers. It's physicists. Like Stephen Hawking, he wrote a book on the short history of time, but lately he's been saying, well, time, maybe it's unreal. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so it's, it's, that's news. Yeah, yeah, that's news. But you know what? I still, I don't get it. What does it even mean to say that time is unreal? Is that denying that there's such a thing as the past or the present or the future? Is that denying that we're, we're not moving from past to present into the future? I, I don't get it. Well, uh, let me explain how I get my mind around it to the extent that I do. Uh, imagine I've got a very detailed calendar on my wall. It's, it's basically a list of events. Last week's pizza party, yesterday's meeting with the dean, tomorrow's dentist appointment. Now, no physicist is going to convince me that the things in the little boxes on my calendar don't occur. Events happen. Things change. Well, right, exactly. You're making my point. Isn't that precisely what the physicist is supposed to do, is supposed to give us a, a grand theory of how all the events in the universe, from the past down to the present into the future, unfold through time? Isn't a physicist who denies the reality of time so denying the reality of the events and the changes? you were talking about? I don't get it. Well, that seems to me where there's a bit of room for maneuver. Because think about this super detailed calendar divided into years, months, weeks, days, hours, and even minutes. I mean, that's quite a bit of structure that really goes beyond our experience of, of everyday events, right? The structure imposes a strict order on the events, and they fall either into the past or the future, or except for this particular moment we call now. 
But 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 uh, I'm not sure I'm following you. A calendar, sure, it's a useful framework for organizing our experiences and our managing our plans and expectations and all that. But are you saying that it's a good model for what time really is? I, I'm not sure I follow. No, I, I'm saying that it, it may be a useful framework for those of us with a kind of earthbound existence. But, you know, once we thought the Earth was flat into the center of the universe, we had this framework that works well for a lot of purposes. But maybe, maybe our concept of time is limited or even false in that way. So it would, would it be too alarming if a physicist were to say, surprise, uh, you have this completely wrong view of how these events fit together. Your concept of time is just oversimple and lacking, and yeah. it's really not real. Uh, well, I guess I get the point. I mean, physicists do that to us all the time. They're always embarrassing common sense. So you're suggesting that common sense ideas like before and after, today, tomorrow, yesterday, and so on, they're all just a framework that maybe helps us organize events from a human perspective but aren't really real? Right. When, when we, or rather the physicists, look at the vastness of the cosmos and the intricacies of quanta and try to come up with a theory that makes sense of all of it, it could turn out that our little earthly framework of, of before and after and time doesn't fit very well. Uh, but that implies that our framework for segmenting and measuring time is something maybe purely subjective with no objective reality. But, but, but then what about change, John? change is real. That's not just subjective. Some people say, yeah, it's just subjective impressions, but then the impressions change, so you still got change. And once you've got real change in the universe, don't you have real time? I, I don't get it. Well, I think uh, we need some time to think about that. And then maybe we'll change our minds and come to see that change is not real either. Well, now you're just talking in paradoxes, John. Well, today's paradox is tomorrow's grant proposal and maybe the day after tomorrow's insight. But I thought you didn't believe in today's or tomorrow's. Well, I, I do for now because uh, just recently we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Esch, out to learn how people throughout history and across cultures have measured this thing or non-thing we call time. She files this report. When you're bored or in pain, time goes by so slowly. Boring. When you're busy, happy, or in love, time moves fast. Oh, let the good times roll. People have been trying to measure time forever. Ancient Egyptians had shadow clocks, Romans had sundials, and in 6th century China, people used candle clocks that marked the passage of time by melting. If you come in my house, you're faced with a, a very large stand on which is a church clock dating from about 1750 with a nine-foot pendulum. Jeffrey Hollis says his clock rather dominates the house. I have a very patient wife. Hollis is a member of the Antiquarian Horological Society in the UK, a group of hobbyists who study old-timey devices that measure time. I'm just fascinated by the regularity of clocks, the different sorts, and I think it's something to do with an innate feature of mankind. We like regularity, we like order. Nothing can beat the regularity of a clock. Hollis says early clocks didn't have dials, they were more like bells. That actually is the earliest function of clocks. The word clock derives from the word bell, and they were introduced probably in the 12th or 13th century to ring bells so that monks could uh, keep accurately to their uh, services. According to Hollis, it might go all the way back to St. Benedict. In 530 AD, uh, he introduced the idea of a regular cycle of prayer. Monks had to pray seven times a day, and he set down the hours. 
So monks would hear a distant bell and then ring their own, almost like a game of telephone, but with timekeeping bells. And in fact, this is where we get the well-known nursery rhyme about Frère Jacques, Frère Jacques, Dormez-vous, dormez-vous, sonnez la matina, sonnez la matina. Because it was a terrible thing if the monk in charge of the calling his colleagues fell asleep. By the 13th and 14th centuries, clocks were status symbols. Just as today, cities all around the world have to have museums and art galleries to attract people, in those days they had to have complicated astronomical clocks. An astronomical clock has wheels representing the movement of the sun, moon and planets, in addition to the time of day. Hollis says in battles, the victor would sometimes take the astronomical clock of the vanquished as a trophy. This was in 1382. Philip the Bold of Burgundy defeated the Flemish burghers at Rosbeck and uh, punished them by taking away their clock. Another key development was the pendulum clock, invented by a Dutch scientist in the mid-17th century. The scientist was inspired by Galileo's fascination with pendulums. Galileo had discovered that the time it takes a pendulum to swing is approximately the same, no matter the size of the swing. The invention of the pendulum meant that ordinary people could now afford a decent timekeeper. And this radically changed uh, people's approach to time. It meant that now people could really do things in common. These new timekeepers allowed people to work together more efficiently and came in handy as people moved into cities and started working by the hour. These days, everyone has access to time measurement. There are even clocks that are so precise, like the quantum logic clock, that if it ran for another three and a half billion years, it wouldn't even be off by a second. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Want to hear more? You can hear the rest of the program by purchasing it at iTunes Music. Or, for unlimited listening, become a subscriber at philosophytalk.org.